0: Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Scott Luton and special guest Theodore Lau here with you on the latest edition of This Week in Business History Live. Theo, how are you doing?
1: I am very good. How are you doing, Scott?
0: It is so good to have you back. I want to say this is your third appearance as part of the extended family, but your first on biz history. So great to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me. I think this is one Of the very, very few times that we actually talk about history. So it's
0: super cool. I agree with you. Now, for the three people out there that don't know Theo Lau, it's really important. She's a founder at Unconventional Ventures. She's a world-renowned thought leader and keynote on fintech and AI, amongst other things. She's the author of the bestseller, Beyond Good, How Technology is Leading a Purpose-Driven Business Revolution. I've got my copy. Great, great read. So, Theo, thanks again. And we're going to talk about some of those things about midway through the show. Does that sound good? Perfect. That sounds beyond good, right, Theo?
1: Oh, that's <laughs> a nice thing. I'd love to remember that.
0: <laughs> all right. So, great to have you. All right. So, to all of our listeners out there, as some folks know, Biz History focuses on lesser known stories of leaders and innovation at the intersection of, you guessed it, business and history. We drop a new episode every Tuesday, including replays of our live sessions. And the handcrafted masterpieces, Theo, the handcrafted masterpieces that Kelly Barner continues to churn out. And you can check all that out by finding This Week in Business History wherever you get your podcasts. But today, Theo, we continue a newer aspect to our Biz History programming, Biz History Live. We get real creative with titles around here, Theo. We go live about every other week. And today we've got five very interesting historical moments to share. Does that sound good to you?
1: It is wonderful. I think some of them are
0: my favorite topics. I agree. So and we have lots of kindred spirits. I think we're going to find some very common favorite topics to get in here, to get into here today. So you ready to dive in? That's good. All right. Let's get let's get going here with talking one of our favorite, favorite topics. Look at those gorgeous grapes. So number one on our list today, want to have a little fun first. I want to talk about international. Cabernet Sauvignon Day. Now, this was new for me and you, right, Theo? This the day that is.
1: I had no idea, but you know what? Anything that has to do with wine, let's celebrate it.
0: <laughs> so, a little background: Cabernet Sauvignon originated in Bordeaux, France. As may, many folks may guess, it was born from a chance mixing back in the 17th century by of two very established wines of the time, Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc. What's interesting. Theo, you may know this, is it took them forever to really kind of find a really, with a great deal of accuracy and precision until DNA testing came around to really figure out where and when it originated. Are you familiar with that?
1: Mm -mm. No, 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 no. I just know that it's literally a labor of love to find and to be able to create something that people like. It's a lot of work.
0: I'm with you. I'm with you. As Amanda says, International Cab Day also known as Tuesdays in the Luton House. I love that. <laughs> and big th- big thanks to Amanda and Clay, of course, who are with us helping to make production happen here today. Thanks so much. All right. So as we continue down the story of one of our favorite topics, the Serendipity Grape, that's what I'm calling Serendipity Grape, new nickname. It's grown to become one of the most popular varietals in the world. As of 2021, the total wine market was worth approximately billion. That's the total. Now, that's expected, Theo, to grow some 10% a year from 2021 to 2025. Now, I think you and I, we're doing our parts to help spur that growth. Is that right?
1: Yeah, helping the economy grow. That's how I like to call it.
0: Yes, I'm with you. And big reds, like some of our faves, like Cab, Merlot, and others, showed double-digit growth in 2021. So clearly, they're some of the most popular Beverages in the industry. Now, according to Vivino data, I think I said that right, Vivino data, over 11% of all wines in the world contain Cabernet Sauvignon, the grape. And many sources say that it's the most widely planted grape in the world. So, Theo, with all of that said, I got a question for you. And I think I already know your answer, but I'm going to ask you for any of our listeners that may not. Are you a wine enthusiast? And do you like a good cab?
1: Here you go. I did Exhibit (laughs) 1 and Exhibit 2. I do like red. Red is my favorite. I like big, bold red. And my favorite grape variety is Nebbiolo. So it's produced in Italy. And Barolo, as Exhibit's here, they are actually called King of Wines. They are amazing. They are bone dry. And <laughs> for those of you who are watching or listening, I would say give it a shot. If you okay. like cap. it's it's I do do cap. I like it. I do not discriminate. I love red, but I do prefer Barolo.
0: So um, I'm going to act, you know, we are with a wine consultant here with Theo and she shared Amanda and Clay. She shared a link for one of her favorites, which is the, uh, one with a pink label, let's drop that link in the chat. So folks can, can, can splurge and find it. Now, Theo here in our house, at least with Amanda and I, I am a big Chardonnay fan. I like red, especially with certain meals, but probably my go-to is Chardonnay. And if I splurge on a bottle, which I think you and I may have a different definition of splurging is I like Sonoma Couture, which is a Russian river Valley Chardonnay and you know, probably a lot of folks, Kendall Jackson. That's one of the most drinkable, easy, consistent wines out there. It's like the Chick fil A of, of white wines, maybe. I don't know. You know. It's always consistent. You know what I mean? Okay. Uh, it's, like, it's like a chicken sandwich. Now, are you a Chardonnay fan at all?
1: I can. And on occasions, I do do chilled white wines. My favorite is Sans It's a French wine and it's amazing with seafood. I do okay. do that. But I do tend to look for. Drinks that have a little bit less calories. So I, I think pre-show we talked about it. My order is water and wine and whiskey. <laughs> and that order and coffee is on top.
0: That's right. Hey, mm-hmm. I love it. Lot, lots of kinder spirits there. And ask and you shall receive. Clay dropped the link to we were we were we were kind of figuring out how to say that last name. Roberto Verzios, Vorzios, maybe? Um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We regardless, we've got a link to that wonderful bottle of Barolo right there. So y'all check that out. Okay. So Theo, I love your water, wine, and whiskey with coffee kind of as the umbrella across all three. I'm going to steal that from you, but I want to move on a, on a kidding aside on a kind of a more serious note. Item number two, which brings us to, we're still rightfully so celebrating women's Equality Day, which was officially last Friday, but tell us more about what this means to you and, and some of your thoughts here.
1: Oh boy, where shall we start? <laughs> History lesson, 19th Amendment, it gave women the right to vote nationally on August 18th, 1920. That feels like years ago. Right. To remind us of the struggles of the past, present, and future, Congress designated August 26, which he said last week, as Women's Equality Day back in 1971. Again, that felt like ages ago. Right. A few things I want to draw attention to to, to that day, Women's Equality Day. Even though the 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote back in 1920, it was not equal for everyone including Asian American women, including Black women, and women who are living on Indian reserves. So that came much later. How did this date come about? It was really, really interesting, actually. This was back in 1970, three years before I was born. Um, It was the 50th (laughs) anniversary of the passage of 19th Amendment. Well, on that anniversary, there's an organization called the National Organization for Women, It called upon women to demonstrate for equal rights and to strike for equality. Mm. More than 100,000 women participated in demonstrations and rallies all around the country, 90 major cities and towns, and our voices were being heard. We wanted women at that time, and we still do. We want sure. equal opportunities and education, employment, access to childcare, and, and all of the same things we are asking for today. The strike didn't bring all of the changes we asked for, but what it did was it demonstrated the power of number and the power of strength
0: mm. when we
1: all come together and ask for something that we think it should have been a no-brainer. And because of that strike, that was what led to the passage of ERA, also known as Equal Rights Amendment by contrast, right. right after that in nineteen seventy-one, and subsequently by the US Senate. Unfortunately, we are now in twenty twenty two. The twenty eighth amendment, the ERA, was never added to the constitution. Mm. So what we got was we got Congress to say, yay, yeah, you have a women's equality day on August 26th. And no, we did not get the ERA. So the work is not done. We still have a lot of work to do to bring about equality in wage, equality in economic power, equality and access to health care. Mm. And all of that is still work in progress.
0: It is. Well, very well said. Gosh, a lot of a lot more heavy lifting to do for sure. And i love to. You know, Amanda, I'd love to get your take and Clay, your take when we think about some of that work still to be done, and especially Amanda from your journey and what you say. So Theo, if you had to, some of the issues there where more work needs to be done, if you had to pick one, because I know you're passionate about a lot of different causes and initiatives and and work. If you had to pick one, what would that be? Ouch.
1: Oh, that's hard. It's not Christmas. I can't have everything. So I would think. Caregiving is is a is is an issue, is a challenge that we need to recognize. The reason why I say that is when we think about caregiving, is twofold. One is mothers, parents caring for young ones, and also adult children caregivers, family caregivers taking care of their older parents. It goes both ways, and the lack of caregiving infrastructure, I would like to call it, it impacts women in many ways because either. We have to take time out, right, to take care of our parents. Or not everyone have access to paid maternity care or paid family leave. And so they also have to either quit their job or to take unpaid time to take care of the newborn. So regardless of which side of the spectrum you're looking at, it impacts women's economic power. It impacts the way we work and how we work. A lot of women ended up either quitting the workforce or they have to choose jobs that give them more flexibility, i.e. lower pay. A lot of the challenges that we see from a money perspective comes from that. So I, if there's only one thing I can get, I would love for both private and public sector to take care of the caregiving, caregiving needs of women.
0: You know, I bet you just shine the light in the blind spot for some of our listeners with, w- with your answer to that question. So I appreciate you sharing. And then secondly, you know, we, 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 I wish it was as simple as let's go at one by one, you know, but we've got, we've got to make progress across so many different fronts. So really, truly no one's left behind and everyone, and everyone, no matter what walk of life can have opportunity in, in, in 2022, goodness gracious So here's some of those dates. You know, and, and can you imagine, I'd love to go, if I had a time machine and not to be, not to be hokey here, but if I had a time machine, can you imagine if you went back and you interviewed some of those folks that participated in those massive rallies and they, they saw legislation and, and right some of the right conversations taking place, it'd be heartbreaking in some measures to, to share with them what certain aspects of, of society is in 2022, you know?
1: It is. One of the things I I have said a lot the last year is so much has changed and yet so much has not changed. If we look at equal rights, something that, you know, we thought we would take for granted, only a handful of countries in this entire world have not ratified ERA. Mm. The United States may one of them. The other countries, Iran, Somalia, Sudan, Tonga. Wow. So voila, so much has changed yet. So much still needs to be done.
0: Yep. Agreed. All right. So this is is from Amanda under This Week in Business History. Amanda says, International Women's Day is great to recognize, but our mantra, deeds, not words, well said, comes to mind, less talk and more action. Excellent, excellent point there. Thank you, Amanda. Okay. So Theo, thanks again for sharing some of your perspective there. Again, I think some of the folks, whether it's the issue you mentioned with, what you say, child care infrastructure? What did you say? You said caregiving, caregiving infrastructure. I love that, Theo. And then some of the backdrop for what led to recognizing last Friday. So thank you very much. Before we move on to item number three, we're going to kind of shift gears into retail. We love talking retail around here. Tell us, if you would, what prompted you to write this book, Beyond good, how technology is leading a purpose-driven business revolution. What prompted it?
1: So my co-author, Bradley, Lightman, and myself, we have spent the last few years working with a lot of startups, as well as incumbents around the world, United States and overseas. And we saw a lot of amazing people doing amazing things, not always getting the support and opportunities that we think they deserve. We also see a lot of different lessons learned, if you will, from economies from overseas. Right, And so we started writing about it, and we started interviewing people around and about what they do. And then a publisher approached us and said, hey, we love what you guys have been writing about. Would you like to put that in a book? And so that's how that came to be because we believe that – We believe in sharing. I think sharing is is something we don't do often. And learning from others is also something we do not do often. If we look at financial services, right, it is very well established in Mm. the West, United States and UK, Europe and what have you. But if you look towards the East, you look at Asia, Southeast Asia, Africa, South America, all of these economies, they're doing amazing things with technology, we look back at COVID when we get relief funds mm. from governments, right, individuals. We get them in checks. We get them in prepay cards. You know how people in the Philippines were getting the, the assistance from government? Through their smartphones. Mm. Same in China. Same in a lot of other economies. And the funds get dispersed immediately. And people can use it right away. We didn't have to wait for a check to come in. We didn't have to wait to go deposit. Good God, 2022, I'm still writing checks. So there are a lot of things I think we can learn from others. And also not just in applying technology, but also in their business models, make it less extractive and make it more inclusive. And so Mm. was how the book came about.
0: I love it. And it's a great read. I love the altitude that you and Bradley keep it at because anyone, you know, you're clearly a fintech guru amongst other things, but you keep it at altitude where folks don't have to be, you know, those experts enjoy the read. So I really appreciate sharing. And I think folks, correct me if I'm wrong, Theo, I think folks can go to beyondgoodbook.com and many other places to get the book. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning it. And it is important that we learn across industry. So there are examples in there for those of you who like chocolates. I think we should find a story in there. There is a use case on Tony Chocoloni. Those are chocolate bars that I found in Europe and now they're in the United States. And if you read about this story, it's all about using technology, blockchain technology, to trace the origin of their beans, to make sure they're not employing slaves through supply chain. And so I think those are the type of examples that we can learn from You know, because you talk to a lot of supply chain folks. And so the idea is how can we then employ those business models and practices and things that we do?
0: Well said. I mean, as I hear you share, it's about, you know, cross filtering and intel sharing and really building a a multi-industry fabric so that we can move forward in a meaningful way. I mean, modern slavery, you think about that. And you think about, unfortunately, it's growing in 2021 and 2022 as our friends from Hope for Justice and their data has shared with us, it's a travesty. But I got to tell you, you know this probably because you you were just talking about it, but Tony Chocolone just just announced along with Ben and Jerry's a partnership because Ben and Jerry's wants to eradicate modern slavery and human trafficking and child labor from their products. So that'll be really exciting to see. By the way, Hello, Chris. Chris, great to see you. He's got his shades on. His future is bright for sure. But Chris, hey, join in the conversation. Let us know what your take is on any of these subjects that we're talking about. All right. So Theo, one more thing. Your podcast that you've been, I mean, gosh, so many folks are late to podcasting. You were not. You are an early mover. Let's talk about One Vision, the podcast. So, so what's that about?
1: We are actually approaching 200 episodes. I think it's going to come in the next few weeks. It flies. The podcast, I actually hijacked it from my colleague in the (laughs) group. He was running it. It was called Rhetoric, and he started it on blockchain season. And then he found me on LinkedIn. He came to the States for meetings, and we met up in D.C., And he was like, hey, I have this podcast. Would you like to come on the show? I said, yes. And next thing you know, I went from a guest to (laughs) co-hosting the show to now I'm practically just having so much fun with it. We want to use it as a platform to talk about stories, to talk about people who are doing good. We changed the name to One Vision a few years ago because we wanted to reflect on what we want to do, is Mm. have one world. We don't have different worlds, despite Mm. people who want to shoot themselves up to Mars. We have (laughs) one ecosystem. We all share. We share the Earth's resources, air, water. We are in it together. And we have one vision to create one world for everyone with one voice, not multiple voices. And so that's how that came about. And just telling stories.
0: My favorite thing certainly lean in on and uh, you can find one vision wherever you get your podcast and y'all drop new episodes. What was the cadence is
1: every week, every Tuesday,
0: okay. oh, every Tuesday,
1: Monday. <laughs> <laughs> moving. I'm moving it around, but mostly Monday night is when it drops, but once a week. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Wonderful. So check out one vision. I love the story behind it and look forward to a lot more new episodes to come. And, and by the way, I think episode numbers, Only matter to us, our podcasters, right? I can only tell you, I can only imagine how much work went into 200 episodes. So from our whole family here at Biz History, congrats. And we look forward to celebrating with you. Thanks. Okay. So let's move back into speaking of Biz History. Let's talk more history. Let's talk retail history. So let me share this with you, Theo. So the story of Macy's, right, for item number three, the story of Macy's. So I think I get this name right. Rowland Hussey or Hussey Macy—I'm not sure which pronunciation—but Rowland R.H. Macy. Let's call it R.H. Macy because that's what he, what he went by. He was born August 30th, 1822, on Nantucket Island, Massachusetts. He ventured out west as a young man, opened a dry goods store in California to try to take advantage of the gold rush. Theo, that store failed, along with four more back east that he that he stood up afterwards with him and his brother and some other folks. So, undeterred, which is probably my favorite part of the story, Theo, because you know how you fail all the time in, in the startup world, right? But those folks that persevere, just like R. H. Macy, persevered. He decided to move to New York City in 1858. He opened a store named R. H. Macy Dry Goods. He was really stuck on that Macy name, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> he finally, Theo, he finally caught a break, and the store did well. In fact, he expanded over the next couple of years, but some folks may not know this. Macy would pass away in 1877 and eventually not, not too long after that, the Macy family would sell the business altogether in 1895 to Isidore and Nathan Strauss. Oh. Now it was the straw. It was the Strauss brothers that would move the company's flagship store and the company headquarters to the iconic Herald square location in Manhattan. Now, we could spend I
1: know that huh
0: you know I, I, I bet a lot of folks didn't i certainly didn't when i first i did a, a podcast on the macy story probably a, a year or so ago and that surprised me as well but get this so we, we can't do it justice between 1895 and early 20th century to 2022 but folks macy's still around and doing despite some challenges that we were talking pre-show over 700 stores now in 2022 in over 400 locations, about 90,000 team members. But one last thing, and Theo, I'm gonna get your take here. One last thing. So if you go back to R. H. Macy, you know the founder, way back in the mid mid 19th century, back before he tried his hand at retail, right when he was still up in Massachusetts, Nantucket Island, he spent some time whaling. Now, I don't know about you, I definitely that would not be for me. I could barely. Squish a spider, much less wailing, all that stuff. But it was during this stretch he got a red star tattooed on his wrist or arm. It kind of depends on who you talk to, and that is where that tattoo is where the red star originates from. from the one, the same one you see in advertising logos, like the image that we're sharing here. So I share all of that, and that of course doesn't do the whole Macy's story justice. But hey, Theo, uh, are you a fan of the Macy's department store? Or if not, what's a store that maybe you spent some time up in during your upbringing?
1: That is fascinating. Oh my god, I'm learning so much from just the (laughs) last ten minutes. So this is interesting. I moved to the states back in '92. Okay, and that was when when I went to college in upstate New York. The first, my first memory of Macy's was. Thanksgiving, because I went to my aunt's for Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving break. Right. Uh, I had no idea what it was. I'm like, oh, Thanksgiving. Oh, holiday. All right. So I made (laughs) this three-hour drive from school. I went to RPI down to Manhattan, where my aunt lived. And that was the first time I heard of a place called Macy's. And that was the Thanksgiving parade and, and all of that. And that was also when I realized, wait a minute, stores close on Thanksgiving. No restaurants are open. No stores were open. That was my first memory of Macy's. It's it's fascinating because I grew up in Hong Kong, and you know we have big department stores and everything, but I don't actually remember any of those where people would have an emotional attachment to the store. Not the same way that Macy's is. Macy's is iconic, right? The the door and Manhattan. When you get out of Penn Station, you walk a block there it is right there and then you can't miss it fireworks display 4th of july sponsored by me this has been going on forever so it's it's an icon but do people still go to department stores
0: so that was the really one of the aspects of our pre-show conversation i was really enjoying because that answer we could dedicate like a whole series to that retail is in person, brick and mortar retail is in such an interesting space. In particular, the department store. In particular, mm-hmm. the mall. I'm yeah. not sure which has bigger challenges, but you know, my quick response. I'd love to get yours to your to your own question. Is I think for those retailers that really have leaned into 2022 and are not, aren't doing business like it's 1986, they focus on things like air, experiential retail. They've really dialed in on what all of their buyers, regardless of what, you know, generation and walk, all, you know, all, of, you know, all their customers want. And from a supply chain nerd standpoint, maybe, you know, those, those retailers that as we've seen more and more as e-commerce is being fulfilled and served from the stores, they use some of that footprint that they can assign more profit to. Mm-hmm. I think it, I think we could be, we could be, it'd be interesting to see the next few years when it comes to retail and department stores. Now, the malls, we'll have to save that for another conversation. But what, what is your take?
1: I don't know. I, I think it's, it's, it could also be region-specific. I'll give you an example. I spent the last month in Hong Kong. I was finally able to travel overseas. Took, Gosh, they were, they were close for more than two years. And one thing about Hong Kong is it, it's a very, very densely populated city. You don't really have anywhere to go. People love going to the malls. They just love the malls. The mall is not just a place for people to buy things. It's a social place. It's for people to get together. You meet your friends. You stop by a coffee shop. You stop by a des- Oh, my God. Everywhere. And my joke with my friends when I, when I went there was, how is it that all of you guys look like you weigh 90 pounds? Because every single, like, I don't know. 50 feet that you turn, there is a dessert place. There's a coffee place. Everywhere, literally, in a mall, you would find at least 20 coffee shops and dessert stores. And, and, and that's what the malls are in Hong Kong. It's not like, you know, you, you go, you buy something and you leave and it's dreadful and it's dark and, and all right. have the same display. It's a fun place to be. No. It's vibrant,
0: is what I'm it's hearing.
1: vibrant. Yes, exactly. It's vibrant. And never, and not to mention, there's also air conditioning, which you need <laughs> in, in a city that's hot. And we talked about it. And whereas in the United States, if it, perhaps because we are, the, there's more land and people live further apart, and it serves a different purpose. Now, for me, I still need to go to stores for stuff. I right. like those stores. I can't. Read. I mean, I read things digitally, but I still like the feeling of an actual book, an actual newspaper.
0: I'm with you.
1: Right. And I I still need to go to the store to get clothes and shoes because I'm little and I can't get anything online. (laughs) But otherwise, I can get things from from e-commerce, but I still like physical stores. I don't know. I, I hope there's a lot of talk. About the metaverse and about right. you know people shopping with VRAR, I hope we won't come to that. I don't know.
0: You know, I heard an interesting conversation, and we got a couple of comments. I'm gonna get to you in just a second. We are our mutual friend Kevin L Jackson. You know Kevin? Uh, yes. He was at is it? I think it was Black Hat USA. Is a big one of the big conferences, uh-huh. and he <laughs> he was on a panel, and the title was, "Is it metaverse or metaworse?" And it, it's some really really interesting takes. But you know, I think like you, at least for me, you know, I, I'm still kinda figuring out my role and, and my play when it comes to the you know, the metaverse because gosh, from who I talk to, folks that are in the know and folks that are still kind of skeptical, man, there are so many different ways and iterations and, and opportunities depending on you know how how I'm not gonna say how deep the rabbit hole, but you know how much you want to immerse yourself, right, mm-hmm. in that opportunity. But but it's exciting, right? The metaverse is exciting and and transformational. It's kind of like blockchain. Once folks really understand and they see some real practical use cases and, and they see some practical ways they can apply it to to their organization, it can be a big game changer, right?
1: I think it could be interesting. What we see right now is still a lot of concepts, right? And a lot of things around gaming, a lot of still more like a retail PR, if you will. I think Pizza Hut was doing things in the metaverse and some other consumer brands. I think it's just the very beginning of what, yep. what it could be. I don't think we know what it will be yet. And that's the fun part is trying to figure out what it could be and how we get there.
0: Yes. Yes. And and it's an opportunity for for folks to help shape where it's going. So love that. All right. So let's share a couple of things. So first off, we did drop again, beyondgoodbook.com. You can check it out there. Thanks for dropping the link there. Amanda says, I worked in the mall in high school and college, and Macy's was always her favorite department store. P.S. I suppose I'm totally aging myself by saying I worked at the mall. Do kids even go to the mall these days or know what the malls are for? That's a great question. I'm going to pose that to my, my three kids. Now, Theo, Chris still goes to department stores. Hey, and,
1: that's different.
0: But, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, Chris says, but you're not really going to go eat in the mall, from his take at least, food course, maybe, maybe stateside. See, that's exactly
1: um, what I am mad about like in in Hong Kong, in the mall, you can actually find Michelin three star restaurants. It's really, mall. I need to share. I need to share the pictures. I celebrated my parents' fiftieth wedding anniversary in a French restaurant okay. that is in a mall, a three star wow. Michelin place. And we opened, oh, we opened one of these.
0: <laughs> but, but
1: it, 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 I think is really location specific. Agreed. It's like a Harrods. All
0: right. We're going to have to get mall recommendations from Theo next time because man, three star restaurants, that would change the experience quite a bit. Get this Theo. Barb says, I went to the mall a couple of years, a couple of months ago, only because that's where the Apple star is. And needed a repair. So I guess if it's (laughs) right, depends on, especially if it's, if that's where it happens, you know, your need happens to be located. I guess you're going to have no problem going to the mall. Amanda says Hong Kong malls sound pretty awesome. I agree with you, Amanda. Okay. Hey, one more, one more side note before we move to the next item. Kelly Barner. In fact, she dropped an episode uh, the most recent episode today. The Man with the Red Star Tattoo. A little play on that movie. Maybe The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I think it's the name of that movie. Well, she, she made a play on that. The Man with the Red Star Tattoo, R.H. So Y'all check that out on the most recent episode of this week in business history. Okay, so, Theo, where we want to go next with item number four is the Treaty of Nanjing, right? Please, and, and this is one of the iconic photos. That came, this is the HMS Cornwallis, I believe. But tell us more about this.
1: Yes, it's, let's go down, to go, take a walk down history a little bit. Seem to be doing that a lot lately. Comes with mm. age. Um, <laughs> so, Treaty of Nanjing, this is, this is something that, that popped up on my radar recently. August 29th. 1842 was when the treaty was signed. And that was the treaty that ended the first opium war. There were more than one. And it's also one of what we call an unequal treaty between China and foreign powers. The reason why we said that was and is because a long history. It was a war that China was invaded by British empire because of opium at that time, a lot of people were addicted to opium. And as we know now, it is not good for people. It's just not good. And that a series of events led to the war. Make a long story short, China lost the war, and they were made to pay British 20 million silver dollars. They also had to agree to establish... Fair and reasonable tariff, trade zones and what have you, allow merchants from the UK to trade. And most importantly, that was what led to ceding of the territory of Hong Kong, which established the history as we now know. That was the first one. The second one, the second war that that happened after that, it ceded more territory and created the entire region and the city of Hong Kong. And as we say, the rest was history. Why this was interesting was because that was what led to a lot of trade in the territory. That was what led to even the U.S. wanted to get into action. And so did France. And it established the city as what it was. And because of its location, because of proximity to China and the rest of many different territories in Asia, it prospered. And that's where I was born. Without that, I don't know if I would be here talking to mm. you right now. So that was that was a little bit of history. That was interesting. Well,
0: very interesting. And I, and I like how uh, pre-show, and you touched on it there, but you know, every part of the world kind of has their own story of, of things as they, you know, historical occasions, historical moments, you name it. Speak to that a little bit, because we were talking pre-show about while all of that will continue to be the case, we, we've got to find a way as the adults in the room, as the leaders in the room, you name it, to, despite that, find a way to move forward, right?
1: Yeah, we do. It's It was a very unfortunate event, if you think about it. This was, this was a long time ago. It happened. History happened. If you look at how history was being reported, recorded and reported and taught in different areas of the world... It's being viewed as it was an unequal war that was fought and how China was being treated was, was awful and unfair because the second opium war led to burning of Summer Palace and looting of a lot of treasures from China, which you can still see in the British Museum today. Now, if you look at how that event was being talked about in British history, And if you looked at how it was being talked about in U.S. history, Mm. you would see different versions. And that, to me, seemed like a parallel to a lot of things that we experience in the United States today. Depends on which school you're in, depends on which district, which state, which teacher even, what have you. There are different parts of history, some that are omitted and some that were being taught differently. And it leads to a lot of social tension, fractures in the society, if you will. I'm not going to get into the politics of it and what is right and what's wrong, because oftentimes it's a matter of perspective. But what is important though, is I, I think history, history does a few things. It leads us to look back and learn from what did not work. And it also serves as a guidance for us on how we can move forward with each other. It teaches us empathy, empathy of understanding from different people's viewpoint. Knowing that even something that happened, a war, depends on which party you're in, you will view it differently. Yep. Yeah. And 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 I think that that's the one thing. It's it's being able to to take a step back and understand each other's perspective so we can find a mutual ground to move forward. I think that that bit is lost and we
0: need right. to find it. Thank you for sharing that. I wholeheartedly agree with you. And bear with me here cuz I want to give just a quick example cuz what are, some of what I heard there is is we really got to we got to vet and question everything. We can't just assume what we're learning or what we're being told or, or Taught is the you know the absolute truth. Get this. So we're big forensic file fans here, right? In the Luton household, and forensic files two came out what a couple months back, right? The the initial series were so popular, so they uh, launched a new one. So we're watching this episode with me, my my two daughters, my son, and Amanda last night, and it was a recent case of a a woman who was tried for the death of her Marine husband. And one of the big challenges, though, is her initial defense attorney did not question the findings of the lab that that tested the, the Marine that passed away. They claimed he had really high levels of arsenic. So they assumed, and as did the prosecutor, that she poisoned him with arsenic. And instead of vetting those results and asking the tough questions and, and, you know, representing the defendant as they should have, they just went with those findings. And then 15, 10 years later, whatever it was, when, as she got another trial, those findings, there was no arsenic. It was spillover and contamination from results that they were like next to, because you can find arsenic in the ground everywhere. And I'm not doing the episode justice, but it it struck me, and it, it's parallel with what you're sharing. It struck me that when you assume that what you're being told and taught, and when you're presented with findings, and you don't ask any questions, that oftentimes doesn't get anyone doesn't do do anyone right doesn't any, do anyone good. So, you know, why and why and why, and then just for good measure, why? That's, that's what comes on mind as as you were just sharing, Theo. Your thoughts. I
1: agree. We need to be more like our kids. Because mm. if you think about little ones, right, when they're growing up, what's the one thing they always ask? Why? Why is it like this? Why is the sun going down? Why do we have to go to school? Why do I have to do my homework? Why do we have to go do this? And why do right. I have to go to bed? It's always why. They don't take anything for granted, they want to understand, they want to know, they're curious. Somewhere along the way, we lose our sense of curiosity. We just mm. assume, like you say, we assume certain things. We take things for granted and and we need to be more like our children. We learn a lot from them.
0: I'm with you. 100%. In fact, there's a uh, continuous improvement or a management tool or leadership tool. I'm not sure what, whatever you call it, called the five whys that you'll find a lot, especially in lean environments And it's never who, who, who it's always why. And then if that, why, and then, and then continuing to help you find the root cause while vetting the information you're getting along the way. So thank you, Theo, for reminding me of that tool. And yes, Barb, Barb says uh, in terms of the treaty that you were sharing historical example of location, 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 would you agree? Maybe, especially the different versions of, of the, uh, the story itself. So thank you for that, Barb. Okay. So, Theo, I, I knew this was gonna be a good conversation. Man, we are touching on so much. It's very a very holistic episode. And I, I got I'm a bit chagrined because we're wrapping on a much lighter note, right? Item number five, Theo, is all about Mountain Dew. Yes, Mountain Dew. Uh-huh. So let me show <laughs> are you ready to go there as we as we start to wrap today's episode? Uh-huh. We're, we, we're gonna maintain our sense of humor, but still not shy away from any conversation. So with our fifth item here today, we're talking Mountain Dew because on this date, let's see here, um, or soda pop. Uh, some folks soda pop in the South; it's all Coke. It doesn't it doesn't matter like what beverage it is. We all call it Coke for whatever reason. So we're talking Mountain Dew. This big time beverage brand can trace its roots all the way back to Tennessee, where the original formula was invented by a couple of beverage bottlers named Barney and Allie Hartman. So, Theo, it was reportedly created, get this, to serve as a moonshine mixer. So I think that might fall into your water, wine, and whiskey loosely, right? So the beverage and its recipe would be tweaked a few times over the years while also passing through a variety of owners. And let me share one of the early advertising campaigns here. So, so, again, think moonshine and mountains in Tennessee. Uh, this, and, and if you're listening to this listeners. You can't see the image. It says Mountain Dew sold here. And the tagline is it'll tickle your innards, your innards. I should just pronounce that right. So get this. So in 1964, though, in uh, this week in 1964, it was acquired by the Pepsi Cola company. Now that changed everything as Pepsi saw big opportunities for growth by distributing it all across the US and some global, but they really saw initial, at least initially the opportunity to cross, coast to coast And, Theo, they also chose to target a different market with dew, a younger, outdoorsy crowd. So, in fact, in 2022, according to Statista, Mountain Dew has about 7% of the total beverage market share in the States, which surprised me a bit. Seven. Theo, that sounds really strong.
1: That is a lot. That is a lot. But there is one bit of that Mountain Dew history that is intriguing. And okay. that ties into the, the whole water, water, wine, and whiskey yep. philosophy of mine. I don't drink Mountain Dew. I don't do sweet carmita drinks. But apparently, the Hartman brothers, they developed Mountain Dew was because they had trouble getting a preferred soda to mix with whiskey.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's such I mean, a great- yeah,
1: everything ties back to <laughs> And it was a 19th century slang term for whiskey, especially Highland Scotch whiskey. So there you go, Mountain Dew.
0: So I love those additions, Theo. And yes, Chris, Mountain Dew. And it depends on where you are in the world, because in some places it was launched and it didn't catch on. So they moved it from the market. But what we're talking about here, this, this graphic may help. Chris, let me pull this up here. That's so this is question. some. Oh wait, that? green anymore? It's well, so initially the original version was green, but get uh-huh. this. They they've had like as I was counting them, we wouldn't have all time we wouldn't have the time of the day to share all the different offshoots including maybe you've heard of Code Red, right, which I think a lot a lot of a lot of folks the gaming industry is closely associated here, but get this. Here's another tie-in to your water wine and whiskey. In 2022, so just earlier this year, PepsiCo partnered with the Boston Beer Company to release an alcohol-infused drink based on a hard Mountain Dew product name. So maybe they're getting back to their roots, <laughs> Theo. I don't know. Wow. But I'll tell you. Think to <laughs> <laughs> There are a few, and, and I was trying to vet this before we went live. I didn't get a chance to completely vet it. But there's only a handful of non-coffee beverages that have as much caffeine as, as the original do. So, it, so you're still, if you're looking for a little caffeine boost, although it's probably like a short-term energy boost, I imagine you might be tired, more tired, maybe after the first 30 minutes. I don't know, but you can check out Mountain Dew and Chris, <laughs> Chris, man, he's making quite an impact here in his first <laughs> business history appearance. He says his keto, the, the diet, the keto diet, Ennards just died. So thank you for that, Chris. Okay. Well, we have really run the gamut, goodness gracious, from retail to treaties, global leadership perspective, bridging, you know, the differences that we have in in so many different ways, progress, not enough progress, right? Which, you know, much to everyone's disappointment, but hey, as long as we acknowledge the work that we still must Get together to do the including the heavy lifting so we don't leave anyone behind. That's part of the good news here. So, Theo, I really appreciate your time here today. I want to make sure, again, folks, we talked about Theo's book, we talked about the One Vision podcast. I love the story behind that. How can folks reach out and connect with you and and all of your many projects?
1: Thank you, Scott. So, I'm on Twitter, PSB underscore DC. I'm on LinkedIn like you said, I'm on the podcast and I'm in a lot of different conferences. Thank God in person started again. Proceed with caution, but still I miss people. So I'll be at Finovate in New York in September and I'll be in Cybos in Amsterdam in October. I look forward to seeing some of the familiar faces out there.
0: Oh man, I love that. And yes, I agree with you. In person is back and it's so neat to break bread and And share drinks with folks and enjoy other's company in person. So big thanks for joining us here today. Theodore Lau, author, keynote, guru, you name it, but folks, you want to tap into some of the things that Theo's up to. So thanks so much, Theo.
1: Thank you so much, Scott. And you forgot one thing, troublemaker.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Good trouble. Good trouble.
1: Good trouble. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it.
0: You bet. We're going to sign off here in just a minute. Thank you, Theo. Thank you to all the listeners. Thanks for the production team. Hey, thanks, Barb and Chris and Amanda and Clay and all the other folks that tuned in. If you're listening to this on the podcast replay, make sure while you're searching for this week in business history that you search for one vision and subscribe to both so you don't miss anything. But whatever you do, it's like Amanda pointed out earlier. It's about deeds, not words. We got to take action, right? So- On behalf of our entire team here, including Theodore Lau, hey, Scott Luton challenging you to do good, to get forward, and to be the change that's needed. And with that said, we'll see you next time, right back here on This Week in Business History. Thanks, everybody.